What is up? This is Evan Lovett, and thanks for tuning in to my podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett, an Odyssey original brought to you by yours truly, your host, Evan Lovett, where you may know me from my social media page, LA In a Minute. I'd love to invite you along for a personal and intimate ride as I share interesting facts about all sorts of things you didn't know that you needed to know. Be entertained and informed as I bring you into my mind to see the world through my lens. There's history everywhere, as long as you know where to look. Let's get into it. Yo, episode number 38, live from the I Am Studios in the heart of LA with an incredible guest. I first knew him as the author of fictional crime novels, and you know I'm not much of a fiction reader, but his 38 books define Los Angeles as well as anything I've ever read. And honestly, I power through each one in like four days. But he's not just an author. This is the one person responsible for the Harry Bosch and Mickey Holler characters, both of which have been turned into equally legendary shows, Bosch and The Lincoln Lawyer. And The Lincoln Lawyer was turned into a blockbuster movie with Matthew McConaughey. And whether you read his books or watch the shows, this man's work is truly Los Angeles. I'm talking about Michael Connolly. And Michael Connolly's new book, Resurrection Walk, comes out November 7th. We're going to dive into that a little bit later. But we're here to discuss L.A. and how this city inspired Michael Connolly to put together one of the most definitive and impressive bodies of work that the city has ever seen. Let's get into it. First off, Mike, thank you for being here. I'm glad to be here with somebody who is equally inspired by this great city. I appreciate that. I'm legit a huge fan of your work. People on In A Minute have heard me talk about it. And my quick background, my best friend since birth, Jared Klein, he put me onto these books. For years, he was telling me, you got to read Michael Connolly. You got to read Michael Connolly. Okay, okay. Now he's got a show. You got to watch Bosch. I get it. Okay, sure, I will. I will. But finally, he starts telling me, it's so LA. It's LA this. Oh, and by the way, he really uncovers the valley. And you guys know me, where my heart is in the 818. And we're talking about places that are you know, not necessarily undiscovered, but aren't really talked about a lot. And just the authenticity for somebody who drives and walks and and is around Los Angeles, it really comes through in all of his work. So Michael Connolly, you've sold almost 90 million books. And Bosch is the longest running Amazon original series, seven seasons, in addition to two Bosch legacy seasons. And Lincoln Lawyer was not just a blockbuster movie, but a smash hit on Netflix. Which are you most proud of? I can't really answer that because I'm proud of them both. I mean, and it's not because of me. I mean, it was just the people that wanted to make these shows, wanted to be loyal to the books, uh, loyal to the characters, loyal to the authenticity that you use that word. Authenticity is the key word to everything in what I'm doing. And uh, so they're both very well accomplished. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, if a name besides my own ends up on a tombstone, it would probably be Harry Bosch because I I started with him, and hopefully I go out with him. 
and uh you know so Bosch is probably the character that's closest to my heart and and so to be we're in the middle of writing the 10th season of Bosch um that to me is an accomplishment I'm pretty proud of yeah very accomplished and both all of your work is has been sensational it's been well executed so again the authenticity let's let's dive right into that because look this LA it's Hollywood there's so many shows, movies, whatever, filmed here, but you watch them, you're like, that's Tinseltown in in the pejorative fashion. But you read a Bosch novel, you read uh, Lincoln Lawyer, you watch the shows, you're like, no, 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 this really captures LA. What? How do you approach that from an authenticity standpoint to maintain that integrity? Well, I mean, I was a reporter, a newspaper, a journalist in this town for seven years uh, had a little bit of overlap with my first few books but that's what I always thought what what can I bring to this table um, and it's authenticity I had a job where I was going into the at the time the five LAPD stations in the valley every day every day I'd go in there every day I was talking to detectives and even though it was private eye novels that made me want to become a writer I knew kind of instinctively if I'm going to make a mark and make my way in this world of crime fiction, I should know what I know. I mean, I should use what I know. And um, and so that's why Harry Bosch is, at least starting out, was a um, LAPD homicide detective as opposed to a private eye like, you know, um, Philip Marlowe. And so to me, authenticity has been um, really had in right in front of mind at all times when I'm writing and we carry that over to the TV shows um, we have consultants that I use in my books and you know real homicide cops real defense attorneys um, even real prosecutors work with us on these shows from the very beginning from the writing from they're in the writing room with us and then they're on the set when we six or seven months later when we film those those things we talked about in the writing room but I guess, or I suppose, maybe it's a presumption, but they're not in the writing room when you're writing the novels, though. So that comes from you. Yeah, I mean, I that is a kind of a solo pursuit, lonely pursuit, but they're at my fingertips. You know, I'm, I'm constantly texting, especially when I write, um, well, when I write Bosch or um, Haller, I'm, I'm texting people to say, is this right? How do I make it right? You know, I want to be accurate. And and it's an ongoing process. So, yeah, I'm in a room by myself. But, you know, I always have the email and the texting uh, going at almost all times. Okay, you bring up something interesting. Because for LA in a Minute, I try to cover any uh, community in Los Angeles. You know, whether that's um, from Studio City uh, to Boyle Heights or, you know, Mexican or Salvadoran people or uh, skateboarders and graffiti artists. And look, I'm not ingrained in all of those communities per se. So you have, I have resources and people that I reach out to and people that I trust to kind of tailor those stories. Is it a similar fashion in that regard? Obviously on a larger scale with what you're doing. No, I mean, I don't even think it's a larger scale. That's exactly how I operate. I mean, I know people that can get me to people if I want to, yes. like, learn something. Um, I'll say, can you get me into this place in Boyle Heights or whatever? Um, and 
and so it's still much, very much, it's, it's all falls under the heading of fiction, but to me, there's a lot of reporting, a lot of journalism that goes into the research and I think ends up in the books. Um, you know, I, I want to be, I keep using the word authentic, I'll have to think of another one. I want to be accurate. You know, I want to, I you know, tell the world the way it is um, because I write about people that are wholly made up. You know, I write about fictional detectives or lawyers, and I just have this philosophy or idea that I want their feet planted in a very real world. So I use real places. Um, I hopefully get everything right. I get haunted when I let something slip through that's wrong, and, and that's happened over the course of 38 books. Um <laughs> You know, I one time, I used to go to the West Valley police station five days a week for about six years. And so one time I mentioned that place in a book and I put it on the wrong street. This is a place I've been to, you know, thousands of yes. times. And I, yes. but because I knew it so well, I just threw in, I think it was Etiwanda or something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, on thanks to the internet, you get corrected all the time if you get something wrong. And if I get something wrong about L.A., that really haunts me. If I get something wrong about guns or something like that, uh, it doesn't bother me as much. But but if I get something wrong about L.A., I, I really feel embarrassed. Man. And that look, again, the accuracy. So I was saying uh, accuracy is currency, at least in what I do. Because, look, there's reporting. And like you said, this is reporting. Even though you're an author, that's the basis of it. And each time your your accuracy is kind of questioned it sort of just chips away but for the most part 99.9 percent of what you're doing is accurate and is rooted in that actual what's going on or where it is or the location so note to people especially on la in a minute sometimes i mess up we're all human over here and we do our best and we do a lot of homework now Let's dive into your background. Okay. Okay. Now, I always hear about Fort Lauderdale. We're going to address that. But before that, is it true? You were born in Philadelphia? Is yes. that accurate? Yeah, Philadelphia. How long did you live there and what do you remember about Philadelphia? I lived there until I was 12. And, you know, and I came from a big family with lots of cousins. I have like, I still have like 25 cousins living in Philadelphia. So I remember all the family stuff. I don't know that city. I think you have to where you learn to drive that's where you get to know and um and that my family moved to florida when i was 12 and so most of my you know seminal memories are all in florida first of all my mother was born in uh, philadelphia she lived there till she was six so so not much but philadelphia connection for me it holds yeah. a, a nice little piece of my heart why did your family move to uh florida if you don't mind me asking uh, my father was chasing jobs. He was uh, like a carpenter, and he built houses and, and things like that. Um, his father did. My grandfather did that as well. And in uh, 1968, I guess there was a recession, and that world kind of um, dried up for a while. And he had a high school friend who had moved to Florida and started a rent-a-car agency. <laughs> so on a whim, my father went down to open a, up a uh, you know, a franchise or whatever you would call it. Um, not he didn't own it, but he he went down to Fort Lauderdale to uh, to run the rent a car uh, office there. 
Now, for somebody who's not super familiar with Florida, give me the lay of the land as far as where's Fort Lauderdale. I know Miami. I know the Keys. Give me, give me the breakdown and a little synopsis of the, the area you grew up. Well, back then, 1968, Fort Lauderdale would be considered a northern suburb of Miami. Now it's a big uh, you know, metropolis. It's the next county north of Miami, and it's a beach community, uh, especially back then. That's why you know there wasn't like these gigantic conglomerates like Hertz and Avis and so forth yet. So there, so a lot of the rent a car was regional, and uh, you know, and and so it was you know kind of a booming time for uh, visiting visitors. You know, I would say Fort Lauderdale subsisted almost totally on on the, you know, uh, the hospitality, I guess yeah. they call it, and uh, people coming down to be on the beach and in the sun in the winter mostly. Did you experience Miami a lot growing up? Yeah, I mean, I went to, I grew up as a huge Miami Dolphins fan. They, uh, the year they were undefeated, I went to eight oh, of those games. Oh, man, still cracking that champagne every year. <laughs> yeah, it still has lasted. But, uh, yeah, I mean, but I didn't, you know, I didn't go down to Miami till I, when I was 16, I got a job delivering auto parts for a, uh, a car dealership. And that it was similar to being a reporter where you become a quick study because you're on the street and, and driving here and there. Um, I had to go to Miami quite a bit to pick up parts, deliver parts, that kind of stuff. So I, I kind of knew a little bit about Miami, but, but it was still kind of distant. At this point, so let's say you're 12 to 16 at this point, did you know yet what you wanted to do? Or, 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 and were you highly observant in, in retrospect? Were you like, I'm observing, I'm taking notes, <laughs> you know, kind of that personality? Yeah. No, not at all. I mean, I thought um, I would, my father eventually left the rent-a-car business and went back into being a developer and, and, he, and he would develop things in South Florida, and then later the west coast of Florida. I always thought that I would follow in those footsteps. Um, but that move happened when we moved from Philadelphia to the south, to the south um, when I was in the seventh grade. So, And I wasn't a great student. So I went through this period, you, you mentioned like 12 to 16, where I went to four different schools. Oh, wow. And, um, and so I, I kind of got tired. I checked out of like the trying to be accepted with the when clicks are already created and so forth, coming into different schools late, and that turned me into a reader. So I was I was reading a lot. <clears throat> so that was a very important part of my uh, maturation to becoming a writer. I didn't know I wanted to be a writer then. I didn't. Yeah. I just loved reading, and. Uh, um, but, and, you know, every, every writer will tell you they start as a reader. I, I got to ask you, tell me some of the books that you're reading in that era. That well, my mother loved crime novels, so I was reading a lot of, like, Agatha Christie and, <laughs> and kind of like the softer kind of yes. mysteries that she would hand off. Um, but I started getting into uh, reading true crime stories. Um, what happened was I was uh, a witness in a, in a crime, to a crime, part of a crime. And I spent a night in a police station with detectives. And, um, and that kind of changed my head. That was like a pivot. We were talking earlier about things that happen in your life that point you in or pivot you in a certain direction. Um, <clears throat> I saw a guy running and hide a gun. That's all I saw. I didn't see what he had done, which he had just shot somebody. I didn't see that part. 
but I saw the guy who did it, and so that's what and it made me end up in a in a police station all night. This is at what age, by the way? Sixteen. Okay. Yeah, I was I was driving my first car home from work where I was a dishwasher at one of the resorts in Fort Lauderdale. So it was like around midnight when I saw this happen. And um, so buyers, buyers, you're driving solo. Yeah, it was the give me the scene. It, I was. One, um, yeah, I just came over a drawbridge from the beach. The the Fort Lauderdale beach, which is the tourist mecca, is divided by the intercoastal waterway, and then everyone lives on the. Uh, uh, west side of the the of the intercoastal, and I went over to Drawbridge to go home, and I got hit by a light. I got stopped by a light, and um, I'm just sitting there. I actually look around. It was so late. There's no cars. I'm sitting at a red light. I'm, I'm going to blow the light. So yes. I look around to make sure no one's no cops are around, and I see this guy running, and he's not a jogger. He's dressed in like uh, like a lumberjack shirt and stuff like that, and. Uh, he takes off his shirt. He's got a T-shirt underneath. He takes off his shirt, wraps something that I didn't see in the shirt, and sticks it into a hedge and just keeps running. So when the light turned, I made a U-turn, drove over there, and reached into the hedge, pulled out his shirt, and it was wrapped around a gun. So, And then pretty soon I see flashing blue lights as police descend on this neighborhood. So I knew something had happened. You know, This is like 1972, uh, I wow. think. Okay. So I... Uh, I go to a phone booth. I had to say the year because he didn't have cell phones. Yeah, I went yeah. to a phone booth nearby there at a gas station and called my dad, woke him up, said, what do I do? And he said, flag down the cops and um, tell them what you saw and all that. So the next thing I know, I'm in a police station. Were you holding the gun in the shirt no, as you I, called I your dad? S- okay. No. no. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I see these blue lights and I'm holding a gun. I said, this is not... I was smart enough at 16 to know this is okay. not a good look. Okay. So I wrapped it back up and stuck it back wow. in. Okay. And luckily I never touched the gun because I, I, was, I was holding it with the shirt. Um, but so then I – that was like a, the gas station was like literally 100 feet away. And I went over there and um, used the phone booth. So then I flagged down the cops, told them wow. what happened. And, um, and, and so I had been reading like uh, – Agatha Christie and stuff like that and now I'm like with real detectives really kind of tough guy detectives no nonsense type Florida people. Florida in the early 70s huh? yeah. okay okay yeah it was it was it was starting to get very uh, high crime you know because of the influx of cocaine and stuff it was all going through Miami and and Fort Lauderdale and so forth uh you know the whole Miami Vice stuff oh, yeah. was, was about to start and um yeah, so that made me start reading. Well, first of all, um, what, what it was is they didn't use the phrase back then, but it was a carjacking that went wrong. Guy wouldn't give up his car. He ended up getting shot in the wow. head. And so I kept... Did I started, he die, the, the victim? Uh, yeah, and, okay. um, and so I'm just reading the newspaper every day to see if they caught someone because I, you know, even though they had brought in some people, Based on my description, the, the, on the other side of the bridge was a biker bar, and this guy had long hair and a beard, and I don't know if this will mean anything to you, but a Ratfink t-shirt, um, which was kind of like a cartoon that was popular in the day. Um, I think it was a Mad Magazine, but I'm not sure. Anyway, I gave this description, but that describes almost every biker, you know, a long hair and a beard. <laughs> uh, bo- and wearing boots, so yeah. they, they went into that biker bar and... 
and just brought everybody. I don't know what the civil rights uh, issue, uh, what, where we were in terms of being able to arrest people without cause, but basically they took a bus full of bikers to the police station. And I spent a night looking at them in lineups and stuff like at that. At 16. What were your yeah. parents? I, I'm trying to imagine now your dad who had advised you to flag down the police officer. Now he's got his 16-year-old son in a police station all night with bikers potentially scowling and whatnot follows that. Yeah. I mean, he, he ended up going to the police station when I didn't get home for a couple hours. And then, and he, and you know, again, no cell phones. He couldn't reach me. He didn't know what was going on. So he shows up at the police station and was demanding to see his son and all that kind of stuff and because i didn't um i was not able to id anyone but i was kind of assigned to this detective named uh, monday detective monday and he was a tough guy and he thought i was afraid to id somebody um and it wasn't that i would have done it but they didn't have the guy i saw yeah and so it became a little bit of a battle about like we know you know he's he we got him you know we emptied that wow. bar. Um, so it ended on a bad note actually. They're playing hardball on you, huh? The the good Samaritan. Okay. Yeah, and um, he's um, you know trying to get me to to make an ID and and they didn't have the guy. My dad's out. He, they wouldn't let him come into the detective bureau. He's out in the hallway saying, where's my son? So it was not a good ending, but I was so interested in these people, these detectives, because they kind of swarmed the case. Not It was like really the dawn of all the violence that was going to start taking over South Florida. And so they had the wherewithal to like put four or five detectives on this case. Um, it was the big thing at the moment. And I just watching them work and overhearing their conversations, I'm checking this out, I'm checking that out, all that really intrigued me. And so I went from reading the true crime in the newspaper to reading some true crime novel, I mean books, and then I ended up with crime novels. And so that was, that one night really put me on this path. Um, and the interesting thing is that when I came to the conclusion, it was probably at least three years later that I wanted to try to write crime novels and told my father, his advice was, well, don't get an English lit degree and become yeah. a teacher. Why don't you, uh, if you really are not just a novelist, you want to be a crime novelist and go and get a journalism degree and get into police stations and, um, and so that's what I did. So about seven years after that night, I walked back into that detective bureau as a reporter covering crime in Fort Lauderdale. And who was there? Detective Monday. Come on. And and, and we continued our debate about whether they had the guy or not because it was never solved. They never never. I was gonna ask the resolution. So it was never nothing happened no, with that. Nothing c- ever happened. And uh, is it a cold case to this day? I guess so. Yeah, I haven't gone back and. Like I, maybe I should. I I stayed in touch. Uh, Detective Monday has passed on, and and the sergeant I also knew pretty well uh, from being a reporter years later. Um, they're all gone now, but I don't know what you know what transpired since. Dang, what an origin story! That is perfection. Um, now in between the times, so your father told you to go to college, pursue that journalism degree, and you went where? Uh, University of Florida. What kind of what kind of student were you? You alluded to the fact that you weren't exactly exemplary uh, growing up. Yeah, actually, I didn't. 
um, I didn't say I want to be a, uh, a crime novelist until after I was up there. I actually went to follow in his footsteps. He was now a developer, so I went up and uh, was pursuing a major in construction engineering, which you know I had a class called Introduction to Concrete, believe it or not, and <laughs> and all the there's like seven formulas that to make concrete at certain levels of strength and you know it was like over my head you know i was a guy who could hammer a nail pretty good yeah. you know and i worked for my dad on and off and on different projects and i was more like i just want to build something i don't want to know all the engineering so i was flunking out wow. and and wow and like a lot of kids that are 18 years old i I just stopped going to classes because I knew they weren't going to, I wasn't going to pass them. Yeah. And I just went back to my reading and, uh, and I went to uh, the student union to, to watch dollar movies. And when I saw the long goodbye, which was a, I think it was a 73 movie. Robert Altman, right? Yeah. I saw it probably, let's see, I was in college. Um, I probably saw it in 76, a few years later. Okay. And I'd never read any of Raymond Chandler's books at that point. Um, and, uh, because I was kind of concentrating on detective stories, I mean, police detective stories. And so I liked that movie, picked up the book, had Elliot Gould on the cover of the paperback, and uh, that changed my life. That was the next pivot. Um, I then got all of Raymond Chandler's books, read them, read them a second time, and then I drove home. It was five hours drive from school to Fort Lauderdale. And that's when I told my dad, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to follow in your footsteps. Yeah. It's not going to be Connolly and Sons uh, Construction Company. It's going to, I want to try to be uh, a writer. And that's when he said, well, go back. Well, actually, I couldn't go back right away because I had been academically kicked out. <laughs> and um, he said, after you serve your sentence of, yeah. the, of a year suspension, go back and try journalism. And I became a very good student. I was able to take a flunking average from my first year, yeah. and I ended up graduating with honors. So it was hard to get my uh, GPA up from like .0 something to yeah. over three. With that baggage. Yeah. yeah. But um, it was a good move. I really loved the journalism classes. I worked at uh, the local paper and things like that. What was the local paper? The Gainesville Sun. Is that when you walked back into the... Uh, police station with detective monday oh no i i graduated with a journalism okay. degree i got a first job um in daytona beach as a crime reporter um and i w i only lasted there like nine months when and i had applied to my hometown paper for lauderdale news and sun sentinel um it was a morning and afternoon paper with different names um i had applied r right out of school but didn't get hired but nine months later they reached out said you still interested in working here so so i came back did you love the newspaper business right off the bat i did um you know because you know i happened to have been, I, most of my journalism career which was only 14 years was working in high places where there was a lot of interesting crime south florida because of the influx of the cocaine and all that kind of stuff by the way i, j I just want to point out he said interesting crime which again is just the at the core of what what is going on here i mean there's so much of this uh true crime infatuation and you know it sounds that phrase is interesting to hear but but that is what it is interesting crime so go on yeah and same here with la when i got that job so um you know fort lauderdale 
when I was a reporter there, I, I ended up being a big fish in a small pond. You know, so I was kind of like the go-to guy. There was like a, a Delta Airlines plane crash in Dallas that was a flight that was um, left Fort Lauderdale, was going to stop in Dallas and then go to L.A. So many of the people on that plane who perished were from L.A. And I basically worked on that story. I lived in Dallas for weeks and weeks, months. Lived, but while working. So you, yeah, you yeah, weren't necessarily yeah, I was resident. There. I okay. was posted there. I, I lived in a hotel room, basically. And, um, you know, so it, that story kind of overtook my life, and it had a big L.A. connection. And so I ended up writing wow. with two other reporters, uh, a thing that was half feature, half investigative. We were able to get the NTSB accident and file, file ahead of everyone. We got the scoop on that, and we wrote these... Uh, a three-part magazine story for the Sunday magazine of the paper that got a lot of attention and one of the places that I liked it was the LA Times so they reached out to me and that's why I ended up in LA wow which I you know I didn't have to my wife and I went out that night and you know she was born and raised in Florida so we were talking about moving 3,000 miles away it was a big move but this was to the land of the writers I revered, Ross McDonald, uh, Raymond Chandler, Joseph Wambaugh. And I wanted to go. I had been trying to write fiction. Remember, my goal was to write crime fiction, not not be a journalist my whole life. And I had written a couple of books set in Fort Lauderdale, crime novels. Um, I didn't send them to anyone. No one's ever read them because having been a voracious reader of crime fiction, I knew what was worthy and what wasn't. And so these were like learning things. Uh, the second one was better than the first, so I had hope. But I also felt, I was 30 years old, I felt like I gotta change up my life to take that third swing at a book. And so when this offer came from LA, uh, I knew in a minute I wanted to do it, but, but we talked about it for a couple of days. And then I took it and we moved out here. And I guess you can say the rest is history. I think that change in my life a new environment coming to the land of my writing heroes um, really turned a trick for me. And so the third time was a charm. And, you know, the third book I wrote was the one that got published. Okay, so this brings us to Michael Connolly actually coming to Los Angeles. So you and your wife had the discussion, took a little bit of time, 3,000 miles across the coast, across the country. And you land in Los Angeles to work for the LA Times. Tell me about that. Tell me your introductory experience with Los Angeles, what your first thoughts were, especially as you're thrown into the fire at work. Well, it's funny. I, we drove out here. We took our time and made many stops. But we basically, I was supposed to start on a Tuesday after... Had you been to Los Angeles previously? I meant to ask. Uh, yeah, I came out only for the interviews. Okay. Um, okay. The first time I was ever here was to interview. Okay. Uh, for the job. And um, so then we drive out, two cats in our car, and um, <laughs> I was going to be assigned to the the Valley Bureau. Um, they had a Valley edition that they were really, um, had spent a couple years really building, and they had a plan out in Chatsworth um, they had a full newsroom I mean there was like sports business everything um, there's probably 85 75 reporters out there and uh, so 
that's where I was assigned. Um, the uh, LA Times put me up for a month in Woodland Hills. And what was funny was, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to South Florida, but the humidity is staggering. And so um, we left very hot and humid Florida and arrived in Woodland Hills on, you know, the Tuesday, I mean, the Friday before um, Labor Day weekend. And it was in the 90s here, and we ate outside. We thought this was so <laughs> we, – we found a restaurant with, uh, where we could eat out on the outside because we thought, yeah. thought this is so nice, no humidity and no bugs. And uh, so we kind of loved it from the start. Wow, nice. Um, now, if would I eat outside in Woodland Hills in uh, in, uh, in late August? Probably not. 118 not degrees these yeah. days, yeah. Yeah, and uh, – but anyway, so it was it was fun, and um, you know, right away I got thrown into stuff because again, interesting crimes. So over that that weekend, there had been a big uh, bank heist where uh, uh, the thieves had tunneled underneath a bank in downtown and then up into the safe and had the three day weekend to you know break open. Uh, safe deposit boxes oh, and stuff like that and empty safe deposit boxes and so it was an ingenious crime and uh, so it was a big news story and uh, I only had a little bit of it because I was just starting and this uh, was literally your first weekend yeah here. yeah okay. yeah um, yeah in fact you know my new editor g- gave me the front page it was a front page story he said how would you follow this up you know and you know so I had little bits of that story, and then one time um, I was in the West Valley Police Station, and um, the detectives, the lead detectives on that uh, that heist, came. Why were the Valley detectives on this downtown? They weren't. So that what happened was it was it was a major crimes case, but for some reason I, I don't know the police philosophy behind it. The lead detectives were going to all the divisions having a meeting with the detectives to say, this is how these guys did it, and this is what you should look for because these are pros and they, they do it they do it often, and we think they've done it in other cities. Okay. So, you know, this is what we're, we're dealing with, and, you know, they were just trying to solve it. It was yeah. never solved, by the way. And, wow. Um, and a trail I, of cold cases is following Michael <laughs> Connolly. Here we go. No. But anyway, I got to sit there... Um, I don't know if the guys from downtown realized I was a journalist because the the lieutenant in charge of the detectives in, in West Valley let me sit in on this meeting. And it was a big meeting. There was probably 25 detectives in this meeting, and there was a slideshow. It showed the tunnel. It showed everything, and it was like this just dropped in my lap. How lucky is this? Because this would be a good crime novel. This could be the basis or the crime at the center of a a good crime novel so like literally within days or maybe a week or so of me moving to Fort Lauderdale I had the idea for my uh, my next attempt at writing a novel wow that's okay so that's fortuitous and I know you mentioned to me um, but prior to we, we met a little bit before recording the podcast that luck played a major part in your career and I don't want to delve away from Los Angeles because we, we got really just take the meat off the bone with this but talk to me about luck a little bit and and how that did play a role for you 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. This has been attributed to either Mark Twain or Michael Jordan. <laughs> but this phrase that the harder the work, harder I work, oh. the luckier I get. So I don't know who originally said that, but I that to me is the, is the motto of my life because I do work hard at what I'm doing, but there's been breaks, lucky moments that – you know, I can I can break into a cold sweat thinking like, what if that didn't happen? Yeah. You know, what if I didn't look out the window of my car and to because I wanted to run a red light and see this guy running? What if wow. I had started, you know, a week later at the LA Times? Um, you know, another one that freaks me out is that I went to opening day of the Dodgers in 2000, and. The guy sitting next to me was wearing a white shirt and a tie. So, I, you know, it was a day game, a one playing o'clock start. Hooky. Everybody's yeah. playing hooky. Everybody's playing hooky. So, day. I mean, I wasn't because uh, <laughs> I was, I was a, a writer, you know, and I kind of set my own schedule. But I started talking to him, and he said he was a defense lawyer. And, you know, I was several years removed from the L.A. Times. At that point, I quit in 94. So six years later, but I said, where's your office because I did cover courts for a while. I kind of got burned out on the police beat, and they made me cover courts. And so I kind of thought there might be a commonality if I knew where he worked. So many courthouses in, in L.A. And that's when – and he said, um, I actually work out of my car. And, and that moment spurred the Lincoln lawyer. And what if I hadn't gone to that game? What if I hadn't tried to make fun of this guy for wearing a tie to a Dodger game, you know? It was – that you know, I can break into a gold, cold sweat thinking about what ifs, the what ifs, and so there you have to acknowledge that not everything is because I'm some kind of creative genius. A lot of it is because I'm a lucky writer. I think that the creativity and even the genius part uh, are pretty substantially verified by putting those pieces together and being able to make those. Look, like you said, or like Mark Twain or Michael Jordan said, you create your own luck, and you've been able you've been able to do that. I mean, I mean working hard and, and you get lucky. Yeah, yeah. I'm not like ah shucks all the time. I mean, I know I have some talent, but I I think if there, if I have a genius, it's in being able to throw out a net and and get real stories. I mean, I spend a lot of time with the kind of people I write about, detectives, lawyers, and so forth. And everybody's a good storyteller, especially when you get into the heart of what they do and why they do it. And, you know, so there's where I, I think I have a pretty pretty high skill in, like, recognizing that is a good quote. That is a good uh, anecdote. That is, I can do a chapter of that, and I can write a book about that, you know. And so when this guy said, I work out of my car, and then he's – I must have done like a physical distancing. Like you must be a, some kind of a loser lawyer if you're working out of your car. And he goes like, no, no, no. This is the way to do it. There's 40 courthouses in this county. There's 400 wow. miles of freeway. And, you know, I, I don't drive. I have a driver. I have a, actually a client working off his tab driving me. And I can work in my car and I don't lose these hours in the car like everyone else does. And... He, he had it down and and like he he could tell I thought he was not a very good lawyer at first so he really wanted to impress me about yeah, how yeah. good he was and he said in fact I live in Malibu and my neighbor is Matthew McConaughey and come like, on about 10 years after that come conversation yeah. Matthew McConaughey was playing him come so, w- weird 
talk about luck and coincidence and th- how things are strange that happened. That was that was pretty. What kind of car was it? If it was not to. a Lincoln, I wanted um, alliteration. Right, um, right. I think he had, well, I think he had a Lexus, but I just like the idea of the Lincoln better than the Lexus. Did he Ooh. actually drive, or did he have a chauffeur? If I'm not mistaken, Mickey Holler has the chauffeur. Yeah, no, I I copied him. That's okay. what I mean. That, okay. There's if I have a genius, it's like knowing what to take and put into um, you know what is called fiction. Yeah, he had, a, and I met his drivers. Wow. He it was a client who couldn't pay his bill, so instead he oh, drove that- him. Okay. Um, See, I'm not a creative genius. I, I take it from people who, you know, that's the that's the art that I have. I throw out the net. I hear these things and and know what how to use them. Did you ever hear from this lawyer after? Oh yeah. Are you still in touch? Uh, he's passed away, but no, I I um, I've always credited him. I I you know that was the only time uh, that was the first time I met him. And, you know, I got his card and I stayed in touch with him. I didn't write the first Lincoln lawyer book until almost six years later. Right. But right. I had a, a, a college roommate and then uh, who was a journalist and we were roommates in Daytona Beach, our first jobs out of school. But he later went on to law school and he was a defense lawyer. And so this was a guy I had, like, knew from, like, a foxhole type buddy. Yeah. And so he became the guy I was a fly on the wall and I researched the book with. But it was... This other guy named David Ogden, who was the originally, he's the one who inspired the idea. And so I'd always been in touch with him. And it's, you know, in L.A., especially in these gated communities, um, you don't know your neighbors. So he never met Matthew McConaughey to the premiere Hmm. of the movie. Hmm. And I was able to introduce him. He's like, here's your neighbor. Actually, by then, Matthew had moved to Austin, I think. But I said, here's your former neighbor and and the guy who inspired this character. And they met at the premiere of the movie. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's okay. an L.A. story right there. That's an L.A. story. And what's also an L.A. story is the fact that you are a transplant, as are 51% of people in Los Angeles now, which is actually a historical low as we're, you know, people, generations are evolving and they're more natives. Um, so as you came to Los Angeles, I want to know your first impressions outside of the wonderful dry woodland hills heat at 90 degrees i mean it's a notoriously difficult city to make heads or tails of to find your way to find your community as a reporter you're exploring more you're obviously driving but what were those initial impressions um all good all exciting um the light's different here from the light in south florida i mean i came from saying that I came from a similar thing, you know. Uh, in fact, the uh, first day I worked at the Times, uh, my editor said, this is a sunny place for shady people. And, and you know, you're on the crime beat, so be aware of that. And South Florida is the same thing, but they are different. And there's different levels of beauty, and there's more aspects to Los Angeles with, um, you know, the mountains, the desert, and things that Florida doesn't have. But I was fully excited and like i said within a week or so i knew what i was going to do with my my third swing at writing a book um did your bosses know did your editors at the time know that you were an aspiring author no no one knew um and then i so it was a couple years later that i finished the book and it got sold and um there's several people on the cop beats you know night and day cops and all that stuff and and we were our own little cadre 
and I told um, another reporter I, I just sold a book, and uh, but I don't want anyone to know. And of course, she told everyone. So then, <laughs> so then it became known. Wow! And then, what did that do for your vocation? I guess at the time, or job stability, if anything. Um, it, it didn't change anything, but um, you know, I wrote my first. I had an overlap. I was still there while I wrote my first three books, and you know, because I wanted to keep the access. I was writing about Harry Bosch, who was an LAPD detective, and I had a press pass that I could go into police stations and and talk to detectives. And I thought I really needed that. So it wasn't a financial decision. It was more like I need this access because it feeds my books. And wow. But at some point, after my third book, um, I asked for a six-month leave because I was struggling with this idea of... of trying to write the best book I could write, but having to go into work every day and yeah. write and write and write. And so I wanted to see what it would be like if I had complete focus on uh, on my fiction writing. And they were very adamant about, like, we're going to give you this six months, but don't screw us. Don't, like, in five months, two weeks, say, hey, I'm not coming yeah. back. If you're not coming back, let us know so we can find a replacement and so i did come back i didn't want to screw him i had a great run at the la times and remember this was this was like 93 94 um i had written amazing stories i was you know i covered the riots did you love it King. did you, your your journalism yeah did, you loved you yeah kind, you kind no, of I, I feel like person. i've had two yeah. two amazing careers but i had to pick one to be best at it and and so i did so I came back after six months, but I knew that um, uh, I'm going to give them a long notice. But I, but I have to, you know, my destiny is to write novels, and and so I got to do what I can to uh, to to be best at that. And uh, so I just said, like, whenever you can get a good replacement for me, I want to go. I'm going to jump into the writing soon, but I have to ask you this question: You were a crime reporter at one of the most frankly interesting periods in los angeles history if i'm not mistaken the murder rate peaked late 80s early 90s you just mentioned the riots i mean this is tumultuous this is daryl gates tom bradley los angeles los angeles i mean movies from colors to boys in the hood to menace to society i mean people are really starting to see parts of the culture and you know headlines are being written about Los Angeles is, I don't want to say murder capital of the world, but a dangerous place. And this is Los Angeles I was growing up in, you were reporting on. What was that like? And if you can, compare that to now as we see a lot, and a lot of this is media and social media, but we see these screaming headlines about crime in LA and especially since COVID and whether it's the zero bail policy, everybody's yelling about something. And, and the narrative is, is crime is so out of control here in Los Angeles when it may have actually been when you were in your, your journalistic prime. Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of nail it. I, it, was, it was definitely a time of uh, you had to look over your shoulder. And then I think we got away from that and we're getting back into it, especially with some of the policies set by the district attorney and things like that. There's the same kind of sense. I, I don't know how accurate it is, but you have this sense that uh, anything can happen. And 
from the standpoint of being a journalist and then a guy writing uh, fiction about this town, it was weird contradiction because that's all great you know you know for journalists you know they they, you know it's kind of like like homicide cops our day begins when your day ends and you know the worst of times are the best of times i got out to la because of a plane crash where 127 people died wow you know that i i took that story and with other reporters i don't take full credit for but wrote some stuff that was was you know, got me to the next level to the LA Times at the time. While I was at the LA Times, they hit; they were the highest uh, circulation of any paper right. in this country. That's right. And, you know, so they were fat and happy and all that. And um, you know, those days are long gone. Newspapers are still valuable, everybody. No. I feel obli- I have the news. Absolutely. I subscribe to two newspapers, and I know media has a certain reputation, but journalism is a modern record. And it's very important. Just I, I just got to throw that out for my sake. Continue. Well, I definitely echo that. And, um, you know, and but anyway, it was a good time to be a, 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 a crime reporter. Yeah. Um, you know, we keep coming back to the word interesting. Um, it was interesting, sometimes scary even. But, um, you know, it's pretty much the foundation of what I've been doing ever since. And I do kind of feel... And I don't know if it's accurate. Again, uh, the media is not the same as it was back then. Um, and so I don't know how much of this is really true, but it does feel like we're swinging back towards that time of um, uncertainty in terms of, of you know, crime striking at any moment in any place uh, yeah. type feel to it. I, I've been ordered multiple times to board up my windows here and the fairly decent neighborhood here in the heart of los angeles so i mean luckily knock on wood nothing's happened but even just that being said um one thing i wanted to ask is this true when you after you you said you um the times you were working in chatsworth you lived in woodland hills did you really live in hightower court is that a true story yeah i mean lived. i i rented the um apartment that philip marlowe was in in the movie long goodbye okay Okay. And I I went through a period where I because we I, we had a child and her grandparents were all in Florida and I was a stay-at-home writer. I could write from anywhere. We moved back to Florida for, I don't know for some something like 7 or 8 years so my daughter would know her grandparents and her grandparents would know her. And I was commuting back and forth because I was still researching. I was still meeting with the kind of people that feed my novels. And I needed a place to stay, so I, um, well, it was coincidental, again, a lucky thing, was, uh, you know, this was before internet and all that stuff when I first came here, but that movie was the, led me to the books that led me to want to be a writer, so that movie is very important to me, The Long Goodbye. And so, in it, Marlowe lives in this really interesting place called the Hightower Apartment. Where is that exactly, for people who may not know? It's on a street called Hightower off of cameras. It literally backs up to the back of the Hollywood Bowl. So so where all the seats awesome. go up the hill, yeah. the downside of that hill is where the, the Hightower is okay. built into that. And it's a historically protected place and it has this center elevator that goes up to the apartments on multiple levels. And he had, it just seems so interesting when... I saw that movie and it took me a while to find it because there's no like you couldn't plug it into a GPS thing you know you had the Thomas Brothers maps 
and I found it. And one day, um, I just knocked on the manager's door, and I pointed up at the uh, the apartment that was used in the movie, and I said, "Is that available to rent?" And this was when I was an LA Times reporter, and uh, and we were living in apartments. So, um, and he said, "No, it's rented." But I gave him my LA Times business card and said, "If it ever comes open, give me a call." And something like eight years went by, yeah. and he calls the number on it, and it, I'm not longer at the LA Times. Yeah. I'm actually living in Florida and staying in hotels when I come out here. And the person who had my phone number, it was reassigned at the Times to somebody. It was a friend of mine. And she said, he doesn't work here anymore, but I know him. What, what's this about? And he, and he, so she communicated to wow. me, the manager of this place called the Hightower says this apartment you asked about is available. So I called the guy and rented it over the phone and uh, had that for about five years. That's definitely a stroke of luck. And did you feel that inspiration while you were there? Did you, I mean, what was that to you being able to, to reside? In, it had, well, in historic, it was great. It yeah. was great because it, it had a view of Hollywood. Um, you could see Hollywood, Hollywood from up there. It was, I could walk to the Hollywood Bowl. So I was, you know, even though I was out here a lot by myself because my wife was taking care of our kid in Florida, um, you know, I went to the bowl a lot. I still remember seeing the Rolling Stones at the wow. Hollywood Bowl. Okay. Um, it was just a really cool integration into the history. And, and it also taught me or told me that I was one of many disciples of that film because I got a lot of knocks on the door of, of writers who came in oh, wow. and said, I, it was like strangers saying, is it all right if I look around in here? And like one was like Frank Darabont, who later wow. was a Walking Dead guy, um, uh, Shane Black, um, a lot of writers that, that um, were very successful were fixated on that place. What was created there in your canon? Oh, stuff that this would have been. I I got to remember the books. I wrote a lot of Lincoln Lawyer there. I wrote a lot of um, the closers. Is this about the two thousands? Yeah, that, early that, early okay. two thousand okay. early aughts. I guess you call them. Okay, so so backtracking a little bit. Bill Clinton, what President Bill Clinton? I must say, in nineteen ninety four, was photographed with your book, The Concrete Blonde. Was that a significant? moment for you did that do something to book sales how did that make you feel the president of the united states has yeah. a copy of your book yeah I, there's no way i can put a number to it but yeah. yeah it helped put me on the map i am by no means an overnight you know sensation right um took me my, 30 years to be an overnight success yeah right? yeah, yeah, yeah no i mean i had didn't uh, you know my let's see my first book came out in 92 and i didn't hit a bestseller list to like 99 wow um and so that was a significant step, unfortunately, at his expense, because it was right at the time that uh, there was rumors about him going on, and 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 a lot of the headlines kind of took shots at him, like uh, the president was seen with a new blonde under his shoulder and you know under his arm and stuff like that. Um, but I had already met him. It was it was funny because um, my brother. My younger brother was a, is a computer guy, and he had a job, non-political job, of being the IT guy at the White House. And he did this for uh, what Republicans okay. and Democrats. It was okay. it was just a uh, uh, 
you know, a non-political job. They needed someone to protect and make sure. It's a pretty significant position, though. Yeah, no, I mean, he basically would be uh, on a travel team, wow. and he had to make sure the president could contact anybody at any time. And so I get this call, and, it, and this is long before Concrete Blonde. I get this call, and it was also known that Clinton loved crime novels. Okay. And um, I get this call, and they say, this is the White House signal office, and the president is flying to Los Angeles, and we want to know if you want to greet him at Air Force One. Come on. And I said, come on. You know, I said, <laughs> and I, I said, Paul, is this Paul? Is Paul behind this? That's my brother. Yeah. And I didn't believe it, and I kind of blew it off. And then they called back again, and they said, the president would really like to meet you. And so I... Oh, and in the meantime, I called Paul and said, "What are you doing this? And he, he goes, I don't know anything about this. So when they called back, what? I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And then he said, there's a catch because it's he's flying from Washington. He's not landing till 3 a.m. And I said, what's the catch? You know, so it's fine. So I got yeah, out small there. Small price to pay. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. And what was good about it was there weren't that many people there. Um, you know, usually I think if you flew in during like daytime hours, there'd be a crowd. But yeah, instead, on, LAX, I just got to stand at the bottom of the steps and say, well, you know, welcome to L.A., Mr. President. And they had schooled you. And he said, if he wants to talk to you, he'll talk to you. If he doesn't, if he's tired, 3 a.m., 6 a.m. his time, just get out of his way. Oh, but instead, man. he talked to me for a few minutes and, and it became clear Clinton didn't know his father growing up. Clinton loves and plays saxophone. Those two things are in that first, my first book. Oh man! And like he started talking about uh, the jazz in oh, the books man. and and the connection he felt to Harry. And I ended up talking to him for two or three minutes. It wasn't long, but come it, on, that's giving me chills. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And President I had, and I Bill just, Clinton early fan of yeah. Harry Bosch. And okay. I, had, I had just gotten copies of my second book and I was able to give him my second book. <sighs> and uh, and that kind of cemented his like of the book. So then the next time, the third book is Concrete Blonde. He actually goes into a store and gets it himself. So it was pretty amazing. Have you been in touch since then? Yeah, I've not... I, I've, I went to a fundraiser for his second term, okay. uh, met him there. Um and then we've had some uh, letters, communications, but you know he's the pre you know the ex president. Yeah, he doesn't yeah, have time I'm for sure me. Sure, he got a, got a pretty demanding schedule. But he schedule. he yeah. wrote a thriller. I don't know if you know this. He wrote a thriller with James Patterson. Um, I think it's called "The President's Daughter Is Missing," and I was yeah, that was sent to me to blurb, you know, to give an endorsement, yeah. and I did, and then that resulted in uh, him writing me a couple letters and sending me some stuff and that was kind of nice that's cool that's really really neat man um okay so let's segue that into the writing now you had mentioned you said you know what if you didn't stop at that red light what if you would have blown it and you know i've, I've looked around late night even here in la and blown a couple red lights in my day said not safe not advisable but <laughs> but you know so let's say you would have done that what do you think would have happened? I, I this is the purest speculation possible, but what what would have happened? I think I'd probably be building houses instead of wow. stories. So it was yeah. that it was that impactful. You said I think I definitely there's like like a three or four markers in my life that had to have happened, you know. And I've kind of talked about them, you know the um the 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 not blowing that light. 
uh, having the move that kind of took me out of social life when I was younger than that and made me a reader. Wow. So these combinations, um, you know, were really important. And and also my father's reaction when I said to him, hey, I don't want to build houses with you. Yeah. I, I want to write stories. You know, I it was a five-hour drive from school back to tell him that. I knew I had to. I couldn't do it over the phone. I had to tell him. And his reaction was, you know, fantastic. It wasn't like, no, you have to were, make sure. What were you he, expecting? If you I was know. expecting like that. I mean, I used the word long shot. I know this is a long shot, but I want to do it. And instead of like, no, you have to get a degree where you can make money and, yeah. you know, I can't take care of you and all this stuff. That's what I was expecting. Instead, his reaction was, okay, so how do you get into a position to take that long shot? And that's when he cracked out the idea why don't you go into journalism you know you'll have a paycheck yeah you'll be exposed to what you want to write about maybe it will happen get you in a position to take the long shot good work dad what was your father's name michael oh okay. are you technically junior no he he went by michael it was his middle name his dad was bill his first name is william he was william michael so he went by michael so technically not but i was like little mike he was big mike okay growing okay up, growing up so one of those moments that we just referred to was also, you know, unfortunately, the plane crash, which in turn launched a big story, which in turn led you to Los Angeles. Could or would your, how would your career as an author have developed were it not for you coming to Los Angeles? That's the one I can't really answer. I mean, I was making progress. And these two novels that have never seen the light of day. Right. Those were both written in Florida. Yeah, and they were private eye. Wow. Um, you know, Fort Lauderdale uh, at that time was considered the runaway capital of the world. And so there was, I had done some stories on uh, private detect detectives who specialized in getting hired by people in the Northeast to find their daughter or their son in South Florida. And that's what the novels were about, that, you know, a case like that leads to something else. Just what was, like, what just was like, the private eye's name? Uh, Pierce. I didn't give him a first name, but um, but it, that was because of Raymond Chandler. He wrote an essay on, I think it was called The Simple Art of Murder, or one of his other essays about the detective, and the detective has to pierce all levels, all veils of society, and he used the word pierce a few times, so I called my private eye Pierce. If you, when's the last time you went and looked at that novel? When's the last time you read it, or even skimmed it? I don't even know where it is. I mean, I have a... Oh, I have a room full of uh, archives and stuff, but I, I didn't read it once I left Florida. I know that. I got to tell you, as a fan, somehow that's got to see the light of day. So whether it's auction or or so, somehow <laughs> yeah. that's got to see the see the light of day. Well, you know, I back then I knew instinctively it wasn't worth publishing, so I don't know if that would ever happen. And then I said, Almost I, makes like, it I better. Have, I've never taken the time to like organize everything but i have you know storage locker with all kinds of stuff from those early days so it's in there somewhere but i don't know where that's incredible the michael Connolly files right there okay so when you started the bosch universe did you set out knowing that there was going to be sort of a um, an expanded plot characters um that it was going to essentially be a universe or was this the first novel, you're like, this is the first book, this is it, this is what we're doing. Yeah, no, you can't. 
you can't foresee any of this. Um, Black Echo was the first, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to get my foot in the door, so I put everything in there I could. Um, I did like series fiction, um, and so you know that that was the secret hope that maybe they, if they if this gets published well, if it gets published at all, maybe they'll let me do another one with this character. At that time, James Elroy was really breaking big. And I was reading stories about him. I still remember an L.A. magazine story about uh, the rise of James Elroy as a significant L.A. writer. And it got into the whole thing about his mother uh, being a victim of murder and the psychology. Like, here, he's his mother was murdered. Now he writes books about murdered yeah. Yeah. women. And... So I just kind of adopted that and said, what about a detective who has that experience? His mother is murdered. And now he's a detective solving murders. And um, so that, that was a direct influence from um, Elroy on the first novel. And that was the only, and I put everything in there I could because I knew, you know. Empty I, the tank. Yeah. And the, yeah. the one loose thread was his mother's murder was never solved. So when I got that book published, um, the editors came and it, it won like a kind of a significant first novel award. Edgar, right? Yeah. And um, for those of you Bosch fans, Edgar, yeah. is that is that where the character name comes from? Probably. I, it's okay. so long ago, I don't okay. know. <laughs> okay. But anyway, the uh, so the editor came, so we won another Bosch book. And I said, good, because um, it's set up for him to solve his mother's murder. And he goes, no, 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 no. That's, that's, his, that's what makes him tick. You don't want to solve it that fast. And so I got this inkling that I might have a career with Bosch because they didn't want that very important story as the second book. So that said to me, well, then maybe there's going to be three or maybe there's going to be four. So, um, and so then that's how it kind of became a series. Wow. Okay. So you got to be emotionally invested in your characters. To what extent do you either make them reflections of you or, you know, pathos, things like that? Like, what kind of emotional investment do you need to have? And along those lines, characters that get killed off throughout your series that you've grown fond of, how is that emotionally for you? I don't know, maybe because I was a journalist, to me, it's, it, this is all very separate. Um, I remember I had written those two novels that no one ever saw. So on the third time, again, I didn't know if it would ever be published, so I thought, if I'm going to invest two, two years, maybe three years in this, I want it to be fun. And so I made a conscious decision to write about someone completely different from me. So in these early books, I'm sharing nothing with... Um, Bosch. Wow. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm using my research as my job. I'm, I'm dealing with detectives all the time. I'm taking little things from all these detectives. And, you know, and I have my literary influences and TV and movie influences. So he's coming from everywhere, but not really from me. Um, I used to say the only thing we had in common is we were both left-handed. But and that wasn't because I wanted to have something in common, but I was trying to build Harry's badge gun-toting representative of the power and might of the state. You know, everything that a private eye is not. Um, What I loved about the private eye novels that 
like Chandler and so forth was um, the guy's an outsider looking in. So I was trying to build Bosch in those kind of clothes, um, you know, an outsider, even though he had an insider's job. And uh, so I just made things that made him an outsider. I made him left-handed because it's a right-handed world. Such a world. nice, subtle detail. Such a great yeah, I made, detail. I, you know, I've never been a smoker. I made him a smoker because he had to go outside to smoke, you know, things like that. Um, what and, about the jazz, though? Do you, I feel like perhaps you share that interest because you get into that and you even had a compilation released, right? There was like the music of Harry Bosch, if I'm not mistaken. That was yeah. released at a certain point. That can't. But again, Comfort. no, but again, it's me being a journalist. Jazz was not my music. It was my father's. Oh. But it, it, to me, it's, it's a smaller population of people. So again, it, it was a little thing about being an outsider. Um, I just thought jazz was appropriate. Also, the, the guy who put me on the right path who said go into journalism, my father, was dying when I was writing this book. So it was also a nod to him to put oh. his music in it. And... Uh, you know, he didn't live to see my first book published, but he knew I was getting. I, I had a deal. He that's knew it. He knew his idea of going into journalism paid off. But that's where the the jazz came from. But it wasn't until I had a daughter. I had a kid born in '97, and a few books later, Bosch found finds out he's a father um, that he didn't know he's a father. Um, so he doesn't know about his daughter till she's five. And at that time, I had a five-year-old daughter. So then our worlds collided and our worldview became the same. And so that book was called Lost Light. So since Lost Light, I feel uh, Harry and I have the same, we're connected in, in terms of being a father, in terms of being, of how we look at the world, how we look at L.A. And uh, so it took a while, but eventually... Um, uh, I think we became connected. I don't know if you can disclose this, but is there an end game for Bosch? Yeah, uh, I, it's nothing that I'm not willing to disclose. Um, I, as we said on almost at the top of this interview, I'm most connected to Bosch because he brought me into this world of publishing, of storytelling. I came in with him, and I hope to go out with him. But I've been given this very fortunate thing. It's almost like an anthropological study. I get to write about a guy who evolves over 30-plus years and going against a city that has changed over 30-plus years wow. and going. And, you know, that's what I treasure about what I do. And and it just seems like a duty to me that I that it should be a beginning and an end. So, like, I you know, you never know what's going to happen. I'm 67 years old. I'm still writing Bosch, but... Hopefully, I know when I'm writing the last Bosch book, and it does have wow, an ending. And I don't, good. I don't know if that means he dies or whatever, but I, I want it to be the end. Ooh, that's gonna be a monster! Wow. Okay. Okay. Now, <laughs> where do you find the inspiration for each case? I know you talk. I know you do your research, but in the book, are is it just you hear something, you're talking to somebody, you're like, that's it. You know, i.e. the inspiration for Lincoln Lawyer, the the chance meeting you at right. Dodger Stadium. What about case to they, case? Yeah, they come. And this one's going to be the book, right? Because you're hearing hundreds, dozens, if not hundreds of cases. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's weird. They've come from all over. I have been inspired by a true story in my last book, Desert Star, uh, was, which is about a family that's, you know, abducted, murdered, and buried in the desert. That happened with that f pretty famous case down in San Diego. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's like one thing. And then one would be um, 
just something someone tells me. The Lincoln lawyer, I you know, I got the idea from that baseball game, but then I started being a fly on the wall on uh, you know my old roommates uh, in his criminal defense uh, practice. And one time he happened. I was actually having a martini with him at the <laughs> end of the day, and he said. I asked him about, you know, everyone knows most of your clients are guilty and you're just trying to make the best best for them. And he said, yeah, I like them that they're guilty because uh, there's no client as scary as an innocent man. And I wrote that on a martini cocktail and that's the first line of the Lincoln lawyer. Oh, man. Um, and, and so that, and I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he was talking about the pressure when you know your guy's innocent. Yeah. If you mess this case up, you're haunted so it's just, it's actually an easier life having guilty clients yeah. and you try to do the best for them you can and so that was the start of that book you know so things like that happen wow. uh, that same guy he still uh, uh counsels me and inspires me and, and gives me story ideas was talking about a, a habeas case he had um you know, in a habeas case is where someone is convicted and you're trying to get them out of prison because they're innocent, uh, habeas corpus. And, and, he's, and, he's, and he says it's a tough case because your client has already been convicted. So it reverses the, the main tenant of our justice system of you're innocent until proven guilty. On a habeas case, you're guilty till you're proven innocent. And so when he told me that flip, yeah. I said, that's what I'm going to write about that. And that's what Resurrection Walk is about. My, my latest book is Harry has a client who's guilty till proven innocent. Oh, man. And, you know, to jump ahead a little bit. So Resurrection, Resurrection Walk, which comes out November 7th, 38th book from Michael Connolly. Amazing, prolific and they're all great and just so, so deeply Los Angeles. Tell me a little bit more about Resurrection Walk. Whatever whatever you could give away. Well, I mean, that's... Because we are all going out to buy that. And by the way, this is a true story. I have two pre-ordered copies of Resurrection Walk. One for me and one for a production partner who loves L.A. as much as I do, but is not a reader. And I've been telling him to read all these books, every all these, you know, my, my nonfiction stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to actually buy him Resurrection Walk and shove it down his throat. And you know what? He's going to turn page one and he's going to be at the end of the book within three days. But go on. So tell me about Resurrection Walk. <laughs> well, it started with that idea. And, you know, and, you know, I just mentioned I'm 67. So I don't know how many more stories I can tell. So I really hate being away from Harry Bosch, you know, so I don't want to take a year off. And but this was a Lincoln lawyer story, you know. And so I, there's a, I don't know what you call it, a contraption in the book in which Harry works for Mickey, looking at, Mickey gets a lot of requests from people in prison saying, I'm innocent. And so he said, Harry, look at these cases. Um, everyone claims they're innocent in, in prison. You know, if there's one that's legit or appears to be legit, let's go down that path. So that So it's a book that brings Harry in mickey together and they're they do a lot of driving time harry becomes his yes. driver and one of the things i loved about that was getting you know, i mean they've been in books together before but they're usually scenes where they're not together it's like a flip of narration and we were with bosh and he's doing this and then when we're with mickey Haller and he's doing that but this book has a lot of them together and uh, that's what i like most about it okay this is a perfect segue so and honestly 
the ones where Bosch and Holler together are are my favorite because you're you're getting your superstars in in each you know and and they're all great but this is just above beyond. So let's segue into TV. Is there and I know we're talking Amazon Prime and we're talking Netflix, but is it going to be possible to get Bosch and Holler together in a TV capacity? It doesn't it doesn't seem so. <laughs> I mean, they're uh, you know. There's a big gap or gulf between Netflix and Amazon. You know, they're the top competitors, I think, in streaming. And uh, so, I don't know. I like to say it's going to take an act of Congress, but our Congress can't get anything done. <laughs> so, so I don't think it's going to happen. Okay. But before there was Bosch, before there was Lincoln Lawyer, there was Level 9. Yeah. Which was a TV show created by Mr. Connolly. Tell me about that. That, I'll be honest, I, I know nothing about except that it existed. Well, it came and went pretty fast, but it was the show, um, it was ahead of its time. <laughs> I know that's a cliche. No. But it, true, it came yeah. out in 2000, and uh, after 9-11, the kind of stuff that the show was about started playing out in real life. But it was about a task force set in L.A., of feds and locals and so forth that um, pretty pretty much looked at internet crime, and uh, and uh, I was created with another police reporter that worked at Daily Times with me, named Josh Meyer, and we had this idea uh, because it was half his idea. I didn't want to write a book because I I don't want to write books with anybody, um, and so you know I went to my agent and said this might be a good TV show and and ended up. Getting a deal at Paramount. Had you had that? Were you pursuing a TV show at that point? Like, no, no. But it just clicked. You're like, yo, this this is going to be better for TV. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it would be better for me because, like I said, I it's not you know I think an internet you wanted it's a visual kind of storytelling you know and and so it had like this high tech uh, computer lab and all this kind of stuff and uh, it dealt with like terrorists trying to bring down planes by shutting down uh, traffic control and air traffic control and things like that and uh it was a pretty good show we filmed uh 12 episodes but it got it debuted uh against another debut show a little thing called csi (laughs) so csi killed everything in its path and so our show got canceled after seven episodes but like I said, it was ahead of its time. So then the whole, t- it was also a serialized story. There were individual things, but it was, we had 12 episodes that were a full story. And so it ended up running on the sci-fi channel in reruns for a number of years. And it wasn't supposed to be sci-fi. It was supposed to be, it was really kind of based on the accurate technology that just wasn't out known in the world at the time. Wow. Okay. And then after that, but still before Bosch and Lincoln Lawyer, the shows, there was Blood Work yeah. starring Clint Eastwood, which was a full-length feature film. Right. How did that come about? Um, that was, I think that was a high concept. It was about a guy who got a heart transplant um, who has survivor's guilt because he knows someone had to die for him to get this new heart. And then he finds out that she had been killed in a holdup at a, at a convenience store. You know, a kind of a common crime um that goes under the radar most of the time but he was bothered by that and he gets starts looking into the what killed her and it became came a book so that that concept i think appealed to uh, clint eastwood 
And uh, so he optioned the book and uh, made the movie, I think it was like four years later, um, which is very cool because I've said earlier that I'm influenced by, you know, the uh, literary influences in movie and TV. Yeah. So there's certainly Dirty Harry in in Harry Bosch. So when Clint Eastwood wanted to make a movie, it's not a Bosch book, but it's, uh, you know, it's an ex-FBI agent. It was pretty cool to have that happen. Their team contacted you? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. What was that call like? Um, well, it was all done through agents, but when I... Yeah. Well, you, but then they set up a meeting with me and, and Clint Eastwood at, at Warner, <sighs> Warner Brothers, and it was very cool. One of my greatest memories was... So, like, he has a, has a whole house on the Warner lot, and I go in there, and uh, they send me into his office, and he's sitting at a piano, and I... It was probably like a half hour meeting and he never stopped playing softly on the piano the entire time he was talking to me and he was talking about the character and my interactions with him are very very limited but he was always completely honest and and good to his word like he even said in that meeting while he's playing because like uh, I got to be honest, uh, I, d I do adapt a lot of books, but I usually don't have the writer involved. I bring in my own writers, and, and so what's going to happen is you're not going to hear from me for about four years, and then um, I'll make the movie. That's how far out, I guess, he wow. is. Wow. And, uh, and so I didn't. I didn't hear from him for four, me four years. Then he called me and said, we're making a movie. I want to oh, send man. you the script. Tell me what you think. I had objections to some of the stuff in the script, and I thought – you know, he's just being nice to me and I'll never hear from him again. He called me back and talked out why he made these choices. Wow. Um, and he made some changes based on my suggestions, but some he didn't. And he said, I'm not going to change that. And uh, so he, he just dealt with me in a very honest and straightforward way. That's great to hear, actually. I like those kind of stories. Now, with Lincoln Lawyer, the film, which came out in 2011, I hear that the script initially was not necessarily where you wanted it to be tell me the story of how lincoln lawyer the movie with matthew mcconaughey came to be and and the sort of the evolution with that well i mean my life i um my experiences with hollywood are movie makers don't want the originating writer around because they could be a threat if they go it's you know use their pulpit whatever it is or how big or small it is to say this movie is terrible they don't want to have that so on the two movies Bloodwork and Lincoln Lawyer, I really had nothing to do with them. Uh, TV, I'm I'm all in. I'm yeah. very much involved, and they didn't. Uh, Amazon, Netflix didn't want to make them if I was not going to be involved. Wow. Okay. Um, so it's a real contradiction. But um, so the Lincoln Lawyer is another high concept to Hollywood. Guy, a lawyer who works out <laughs> of his car, knows the streets of L.A. Uh, LA showcase all these things so that was the only project I ever had that actually had a bidding war and I I took less money to go with Lakeshore because it was run by a guy named Tom Rosenberg who had been a trial lawyer in Chicago oh, wow. and had um, he was like an asbestos type lawyer yeah should I wait a second no I'm okay. sorry this is atmosphere. LA come on it's this LA is, yes. people um and he, what happened was he, I think it was an investor's case, but he got a gigantic chunk of money as his fee, and yeah. he said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go make movies. 
and he and he moved to LA and started making movies. Long the dream in he this won a, city. He won an Oscar for uh, producing Million Dollar Baby with Clint Eastwood, and um, and he had just come off of that. And he had an independent company, so he wasn't offering as much as the big studios. But he said, I've been in these courtrooms. You got it right in the book, and I promise you I will get it right in the movie if you go with me. And I I just believed him, and so I went down that road. They hired a writer. I happened to know the writer just by coincidence. We had both been, uh, like, guest lecturers at a UCLA class. All right. And... Um, and his first script, I, I wrote about 10 pages of notes because he, he had gone off the book a lot. And I'm only telling the story not to slag him because yeah. he stayed yeah. with it all the way. And the movie that's made is based on his script. So kudos to him. John Romano, he wrote a really good script. Uh, you know, but he went through about 10 or 12 um, versions of it. Okay. But when I wrote uh, nine pages of notes to... <laughs> To Lakeshore, I suddenly they realized I'm the guy who could be a wild card. You're the threat. So You're I, I threat. was yeah. I was cut out. I never heard from them again. And like four years go by, and a friend of mine who's in the business said, uh, and it happens to be a friend of Matthew McConaughey. He said, Matthew told me he's making Lincoln lawyer, and I had no idea. I said, You're kidding me. And uh, and I had gone to see a movie that Matthew was in called Tropic Thunder, a comedy, mm -hmm. and he kind of plays this sleazy agent. And I remember whispering to my wife in the movie theater, he'd be a good Lincoln lawyer. Come on. And then like a year later, I get this call saying he's doing it and he wants to talk to you. And um, I, this was when I was living, I was actually in Florida, and I connect with McConaughey, he said, and he thinks I'm in L.A. He goes, can you have lunch tomorrow? And I said, yeah. <laughs> Because I, cause I was flying back and forth so often. Yeah. There was one direct flight. We were living in Tampa. One direct flight left at 7 a.m. in Tampa and landed at 9.30 in L.A. So I knew if I could get on that flight, I yeah. could have lunch with him. So I met him for lunch. Where? Um, the Ivy in Santa Monica. Mm, okay. And, uh, and he goes, like, I know you're not a lawyer, but you had to have used lawyers um, in this, and I, I need to... I want to meet them. I want to know them. And so it was the the lawyer who had my, been my roommate and his his legal partner. Um he had, he was in a two man office. Yeah. Brought them in and they talked to him, tried to school him a little bit. He didn't need a lot of schooling. He almost went to law school and his, there's lawyers in his family. Oh wow, okay. okay. And uh so that kind of brought me back in and uh then the the director wanted me involved, Brad Furman, and he's from a family of lawyers. Uh, his mothers and father are lawyers, yeah, and they actually helped uh, with the script as well. And and so, but when I talked to um, McConaughey and said, "Can you have lunch tomorrow?" I said, "Yes," but I got to tell you, I haven't seen a script in four years, and I assume it's not the one I read four years ago. And so he emailed me the script, and I read it on the plane that morning, and it was John Romano still yeah. on it. I think it said, like, 11th edition or whatever they call it, 11th take. And it was really good. It was what they shot. Did it incorporate a lot of your notes? Probably. I, I don't remember enough about it. I don't want to take credit for anything. Yeah. because. But the book is, I mean, you, you never can get a whole book into a film, but... Um, what it what they took was the you know the the heart of the book it, it was really good anybody who hasn't seen lincoln lawyer see that it, it's good and it's fun and it's a good precursor to well 
the Lincoln Lawyer TV show as well as Bosch. Tell me how those happened. I will, but just let me go oh, back for sorry. a minute yeah, to the course, movie because yeah. we—it seems like the byword of our conversation here is authenticity. Yeah, that movie within the first ten minutes, it is so authentic to to what it's like in these court. Because I did cover courts for the LA Times, and they filmed it at the San Fernando courthouse where yes. I worked. Yeah, and it just—it just had the grit of reality. And and so like within ten minutes you know you're in a real world so that's what I loved about yeah. that film and that script. Um, so then um, what was funny though I mentioned Tom Rosenberg and I went with him and I made a deal with Lakeshore that was his company. A week later, my people get a call from David E. Kelly saying he thinks there's a good TV show in Lincoln Lawyer and it was like. Uh, we just sold it. We're so sorry, and um, and so that that was a missed opportunity. Although I I don't regret anything because I had Matthew McConaughey in a really good movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then years go by, and um, I end up making Bosch for Amazon. It was their first drama when I first was. But there. how did that even come about, though? Uh, it's another one of those lucky stories. Okay, so I. Uh, my wife's from the Tampa area. We have a home there. We lived there for a while. The New York Yankees spring ball is in Tampa. Okay. And a lot of people in publishing are Yankees fans. And so I, I started doing this thing where I brought a lot of my publishing friends, uh, you know, former publisher, editor, things like that. I'd bring them down. We'd have a weekend of spring ball oh, in Tampa. Man, and awesome. so yeah. the guy who had been my publisher at the beginning – of my career had retired and then was kind of pulled out of retirement by an offer he couldn't refuse from Jeff Bezos to start a publishing wow. branch at Amazon. Wow. So he comes down, we, we see the Yankees play baseball and then I'm driving him to the airport and he said, you know, uh, Amazon's about to start making their own TV shows on streaming platforms. And and I've always thought this would be a perfect thing for Bosch because they sell your books. They'd be interested. Oh, and I my. said, well, I just got the rights back. I had a long, tragic history with Hollywood where efforts were made to make movies in the 90s and so forth. And I didn't get the rights back to like 2010. Oh, wow. Is that what an option means? Sorry, p- pardon my ignorance. Is, is, no, if it's, it, it starts with an option. Yeah. And then the option has... A, X amount of time, and then they either give it back to you or they pay okay. the whole freight. Got it. And Got with it. Bosch, they paid the whole freight, so that meant they owned it and I didn't. They own they own um, film rights. Okay. But you can't really. Ma- but it freezes TV rights. It's all complicated. But there's a very oppressive thing to the writer of a long tail, because no one wants to make a mistake in Hollywood and see something that they gave back become, you know, Star Wars or something. <laughs> so. It works against the writer, so I had to wait a long time to get my rights wow. back. Okay. But okay. right about the time I was getting them back, um, you know, my friend I'm driving to the airport talks about this nascent thing Amazon's going to do. And I said, and I knew, like, if you had a TV show on Amazon, it would be like an ad for your books that are on Amazon. So the synchronicity. So I said, well, yeah, I'd be interested. And so he got some guy to call me. And it was very unlike any Hollywood deal where you go in and pitch and all this stuff. They just said, if you want to do this, we want to do it. 
because at that time Amazon Studios wow. had like three guys yeah. working there. It was yeah. very small. In fact, Amazon owns IMDb. When I would have meetings, it would be at the IMDb offices in Sherman Oaks. Oh wow! Because okay. they didn't even have an Amazon Prime office yet, so it was that early in the game. Wow! And that's how that happened. And then, and because they they were from Hollywood, they were they were people that had worked at other studios and so forth. So it wasn't like they didn't know anything. Yeah, but they had never started something. So we were really left to our own devices, and and we're, we made the show we wanted to make. See, that's uh, can you call that bootstrapping? Is that fair on something yeah, to so. that to that extent? Yeah, I mean it was an interesting time for for this fledgling studio that now is one of the oh. heavyweights in Hollywood. But it was nice to be in on that ground floor. Is actually probably the basement we got in on, and uh, and so that show happened, and that's been a pretty successful show for them, and so. Just kind of on a whim, some, uh, CBS initially came to David Kelly and said, we want a legal show, what do you got? And he had his someone on his team reach out and say, is there by any chance, are there, what's the status on the rights of Lincoln Lawyer? The movies was, uh, you know, back in 2011. Yeah. And, and I happen to still have the TV rights. And so, you know, something like, 12 or 14 years after he first inquired about the first book we were in business together wow man okay and then so with Bosch being that it was bootstrapped if you will I'm going to use that term you got to maintain you you actually had decent control over it. what your input is it different than the movie at that point like you're the executive producer what does that mean your fingerprints are I mean it's your DNA but with the actual production, how much are your fingerprints all over that? Well, the situation was that yep. um, I would, by the time this rolled around 2010, I was doing pretty good in the book business. So I had this attitude that I've been writing about Harry Bosch for 20 plus years. Yeah. He's very dear to me. I'm not going to just, you're not going to pat me on the head and run along and say, run along. I'm coming with him and I'm going to, I'm going to be overseeing stuff and we can haggle over contractual controls and so forth, but I'm going to be there. And, and their response was, well, we wouldn't want to do it unless you came with it because yeah, you're the originator of this. You know more about Bosch than anybody. So the only control I had two controls, one is, and, and they, this is almost unheard of in Hollywood. They signed a contract that said every shot would be in shot in L.A. Yes. They acknowledged that L.A. is a character. And, uh, you know, there's no going to Canada. They even shoot indoors. Uh, you know, a lot of places shoot L.A. on the outside and then go to Canada for all the indoor this stuff. Is, this is important to, to listeners here because we are so L.A.-focused. And, you know, to me, not, not to disparage anybody or any show, but Karate Kid is like a beloved san fernando valley los angeles movie and i believe that's filmed in georgia if i'm not mistaken so i i can't uh cobra kai if you will so i can't take that even though i know they do a good job and everybody loves it so i love hearing this from mike connelly about bosch and and the contingency that it must be los angeles because los angeles really is a if not the main character in 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 all of the work of, of michael connelly and bosch so continue yeah, I mean, this, this was also a lesson I learned on Level 9, which was about a task force in L.A., but they shot most of it in uh, Vancouver, and they had a truck with palm trees. 
with <laughs> potted palm trees that they would like put up around to make you think you're in LA and and it was it didn't look like LA I mean they did shoot some stuff in LA but for the most part oh, no man. and and so that was a lesson learned so that was the main thing I wanted if you're gonna do this you gotta shoot in LA good job and then I wanted uh, a say on the script and and who would play Harry Bosch and I didn't have I couldn't I, I forget what it is, but if, a, if there was a tie on I wanted this guy and they wanted this guy, they won. Amazon won. Um, so the only real actual control I had was it had to be shot in L.A. Um, but, oh, and I also had showrunner approval. That's a big deal. And on an episode-to-episode basis, are you consulted? How, how involved are you? Well, it depends. I was there full-time for the first few seasons, and then I – you know, I, I didn't even have to be there that long. I really trust the people making this this film. Um, the producer was this Swedish guy who I had met, and um, he was so into Bosch, he named his first son Harry. Um, and the first time I met him, Bosch does this thing, this thing in the books where if he goes to a police funeral and they do the 21-gun salute, yeah. He walks over and kicks around in the ga- grass and picks up a shell from the 21, and then he puts them in a jar. So he has this oh, jar wow. full of shells, yeah. meaning a lot of cops have died on his watch while he's been in the department. And the first time I met this producer named Henrik Baston, um, he put a, a, blank, a shell that comes from a blank, which they shoot at funerals, looks different than what you see on TV. It, it looks a little different. And he put a blank rifle shell on it. We were meeting at a diner yeah. on Sunset Boulevard. And uh, he put that on the um, table, and he goes, if you let me make this show, that's the kind of authenticity I'll bring to it. And I was, I was sold on the spot. That's so awesome. he and I became partners with, with, with Amazon, and and we went down the road. Good guy, good guy, and good, great anecdote. Um, do you have input on where scenes are filmed? Yeah, I I have like input on every anything I want to have input on. Yeah, but over the nine years of making the show, we've had the same location team. You know, I trust these people. They they're, get it, and and they're just as creative as I am. You know, there's a lot of times in scripts that will say to be TBD to be determined uh, location or restaurant. And it's like they say, OK, let's go into the Michael Connelly books or the Michael Connelly universe and find a place that is either mentioned in the books or yeah. should be mentioned in the books. And, and it kind of goes from there. And again, we're talking Echo Park, Boyle Heights, San Fernando, Van Nuys. This is not your Beverly Hills Santa Monica, Malibu. Although those will make cameos at yeah, times. Uh, we we try to cover the whole city, but our main focus we we said from the start we're La Brea East and the Valley. Yes, we we're in the Valley the, a lot. There you go. Um, how do you decide on on restaurants and eating places, taco trucks, things of that nature? In the show, or both. Books? Both. Just like a lot of places I know from cops. Like, you know, I was introduced to Musso and Franks because that's where they would have, from the Hollywood division, they would have their retirement parties there. And so that's how, you know, that was my first exposure to Musso and Frank. And, um, yeah, you know, there are places I like to go to or places that I've been told, 
you know, there's a place called Birds on Franklin where um, they give cops like 15% off, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's that's a place I go to because it's a good place, good food, and uh, and it's been in the books. And, that, and we haven't filmed there yet because everything is dictated by where you can set up trucks yeah. and things like that. But eventually, I hope we would film there. But you, but it kind of goes like that. I'm v- very proud on the show. In nine years, we only faked one restaurant. In other words, we made a fake restaurant because yeah. of the uh, the schedule of the day. We had to shoot this quick scene where the chief is talking to somebody, and uh, we were at a uh, we were in downtown, and we just kind of rented the roof of a of a building and kind of set up a, what looked like a restaurant table. You know, it's fair. Well, that's fair. I, that to me is a blemish because I love that we use real places. Is that akin to your uh, Etiwanda, uh West Valley yeah. <laughs> precinct? Uh, yeah, I mean, in that book was actually I think the uh, Last Coyote. So that was a book I wrote like twenty five plus years ago. Yeah, but I'm haunted by that mistake. Yes. Okay, and, and that and the fact that I know we only faked one restaurant in nine years of shooting Bosch, that bothers me too. I wish I could say we never. Still, still pretty darn good track record. And so along those lines, what's the toughest place you've had to film that you did film at? Restaurant-wise or just anything? Anything. It's actually Bosch's house. Which I wanted to ask you about perfect. Which is the same house used in Heat, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Which was probably my favorite L.A. movie. I'd have to. Lebowski's up there, but Heat is is Lebowski has the valley. So how did you pull that out? Um... Our one of our, our our probably our main producer, our, our what you call line producer, the, the nuts and bolts producer of the show produced um, Heat for Michael Mann. Okay, and he's got this legendary Rolodex in a digital world. He still has a Rolodex, and he had the owner of that house um, on his Rolodex. And it, what was good about that location is the guy lives in New York has business in LA but he's not there and he and he can do his schedule around when we need his house and that was the same with heat and uh, so I called the guy up and, and we made a deal problem is it's on the very top over Sunset Plaza yeah and uh, so that's one of those places where you can't get near it with uh, trucks you can get one truck up there and so we have to rent a uh, uh, parking lot down in Sunset Plaza and ferry everybody up and it's about a 20 minute drive because of all the winding roads and so filming up there is is a hassle but it's also uh you know a key key location yeah now one of my favorite scenes is in the pilot actually it's might be the opening scene if not it's the second scene where bosch and edgar's partner are kind of overlooking dodger stadium and it's just this crazy L.A. moment. This is what I'm talking about with the show and the books, Michael Connolly, where, I mean, you can see Dodger Stadium from so many different vantage points in L.A. And those of you that are driving, in LA, there's there's different places. My dad, a famous story of mine is we'd go to a dozen Dodger games a year. My dad would split uh, season tickets with a couple other families. And he would take a different route to Dodger Stadium every time. Because that's just the kind of guy he was. And that was one way, you know, in retrospect, that I got to learn the city and just learn, you know, how important the car is and all this kind of stuff. But there's, uh, where, first of all, where is that film? I, I almost think it's like Lincoln Heights kind of No, it's deal. Echo Park. Echo it's, Park. It's okay. on the top of the hill of Echo Park. 
And what I love about that opening is that uh, it's all geographically legit. Like yes. on shows, they usually like someone jumps in a car and they leave downtown, and you know they suddenly pull up at the Santa Monica Pier. <laughs> in that sequence, which is about five minutes, yeah, they follow a guy, yeah, and it's a legit follow from there t- into Boyle Heights. Um, that includes like a s- going by. Uh, um, Angel's Flight and getting on the um, the metro there and taking that in. All of it was actual. It was real. And again, authenticity. Um, we don't make this for people that know everything about L.A., yeah. but uh, you know, I do that in my books, so let's do it in the show. It's and, beautiful. And the trail is, is legit. But if, if we have time, I'll tell you an anecdote about that scene. This, so this is hopefully what we're getting at. Is in that scene is Edgar and Bosch are having dialogue in the background. You hear the soundtrack to Los Angeles, which is, of course, none other than Vin Scully. You know, they're overlooking a Dodger game from from a distance. You can't see the field. They're not they're not watching the game, quote unquote, but you see the lights of Dodger Stadium over the cityscape of Los Angeles. Just so beautiful. And again, that word authentic. And you're hearing Vin Scully on the radio. How did that come about? Well, see, that's where I thought I earned my stripes as a TV producer because, um, you know, we have them set up. It's kind of a rainy night. Um, the lights are on. All, there was a game going on when we filmed this. And Did you need permission for that, by the way? This, not what the, we visually the show. Distant, okay, okay. But, you know, the radio is on. It's kind of a boring surveillance. surveillance. They're waiting for this guy to make a move, and he may not. And, uh, and it's kind of drizzling, and um, which was all what was happening on the day we were filming it. Perfect. And so we knew, as, as the script was written, which I wrote with the showrunner, Eric Overmeyer, um, we would have, um, they'd be listening to Vince Scully on the, we thought like, if you're going to open a show about LA, whose voice do you want to hear first? And so the show starts in darkness, you know, a black screen, you hear Vince Scully, and then the, the we fade up, and there's Harry Bosch and Jerry Edgar in a car. And so we shot it all. Then we go to MLB to get um, some soundtrack of Vin Scully, and they said no. They, no one had ever heard of Amazon <sighs> making TV or anything. It's still Amazon. They Come on, MLB. No. Get your act together. Go on. But I had done this thing where um, Parade Magazine would go to writers and say do a do a profile of one of your heroes and when they came to me i said vin scully so i i had met vin scully at the stadium this was in the not aughts in the two early 2000s i had met him at the stadium uh got to be in the booth with him for a game for a start of a game and uh and it was funny i got there early and i was watching batting practice and even though they have a gate or fence around the batters Somebody hit one that would have been a huge foul anyway. It landed in the stands, and I'm sitting there waiting to, for the PR people to take me up to meet Vince. I'm the only one there. So I walk down and get this baseball, and then when I go up there, so I have a wonderful picture of him signing the baseball to me, and it's on the wall of my office, and it's one of my treasured things. But anyway, like a good reporter, I kept his phone number. Yes. And... So MLB said no, and I know, and I've been sending him his books. It was a mutual thing. He liked my books. He liked Harry Bosch, 
and that became clear when I interviewed him. And so he's at, Irish, and if I'm not mistaken, you're Irish. Is that yeah. correct? Okay, go yeah. on. Yeah, and um, so anyway, I kept his nice number. Irish. I called him up and I said, "Is there anything? Can you talk to MLB? Uh, they don't. They don't really know what we're doing. Amazon hasn't made any shows <laughs> yet or anything." Um, but we want to get, you're the voice of L.A., and we want to start the show with your voice. And he goes, MLB is hard to deal with. So, And I said, okay, how about if I, you know, it's during a rain, so there's a delay. Um, I'll write one page of dialogue, and we'll, I'll, we'll record it. We'll, we'll record it. And he goes, yeah, that's a good idea, but you know what? I'm going to write that page. Yes. And so... There was some kind oh. of there was some kind of fundraiser poetry. Go. Yeah, I mean the season was over. I think we filmed in uh, September that scene, and the season was over. But he said, "I got to go to the stadium because there's an old timers night or some some kind of fundraiser." He said, "Meet me there, and and I'll have the script, and we'll re- I will find a quiet space and we'll record it." And I recorded it on an iPhone. <laughs> So that, you know, that's, you know, I just went there. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if his script would be good. And it was the perfect Vin Scully talking about the stats, about, you know, how many times there's been a rain delay and how they've only had three rain outs or something since 1963. All these facts that he's filling the air with while they're waiting for the game to get going again. And it's just perfect. Oh. And it sounds legit. And like they added some organ playing in the background and stuff. Man. It was, and it just worked out really well. And it was like, hey, I got that. I got that. Uh, that uh, First of all, I wrote that part of the script. And then I was able to get Vin Scully's voice onto the show. So Vin I thought, freaking yeah, Scully. I know I write the books, but I'm now I'm a I'm a really good producer, <laughs> dude. And that, come on, how, what better way to start this new chapter? This new, yeah. I mean, that's where Bosch, the TV show, began. That was beautiful. Um, Michael Connolly, I've taken so much of your time already. You're so generous. But I got a few quick questions at the end, and then then we're going to wind this down. So these are just some L.A.-centric questions. Here's what I notice in your shows, books, everything that you've created. One of my favorite things that's reflective of L.A., which I often talk about, and I kind of do this almost unintentionally in my L.A. in a Minute episodes, is there's a palm tree in every shot. You know, and it's funny that you bring up with the uh, uh, level nine that you know you, they had to drag the palm trees around Van- yeah. Vancouver in the pots. Um, palm trees and cars are such symbols of Los Angeles. What else would you put in that sort of category of just the consummate symbols of Los Angeles? I think you know the taco trucks, the uh, in and out. I'm just trying to think of when you're driving down the road. Um, but I think, you know, what, what the, one of the things that draws and keeps people here is the, you know, the, the top, topography and the, the changes, you know, like the, the mountains that go right through the middle of town, you know, and it can be seen at, from so yes. many places, you know, the, not for the show, because we consciously didn't want to show the Hollywood sign that yeah. much because yeah. that, that's a trope. Um, we end up showing it now and then, but you know, for something like uh, I mean, we've got like 88 episodes, it's probably been in the show twice. Um, 
you know, and and of course there's a murder. And, and it's murder also up unavoidable there. in Los. Yeah. Let's let's call it a, maybe a trope, but you know what? You drive by the Hollywood sign; it's part yeah. of L.A. Yeah, but that is that is you know, outside of the show, those are some of the things that are just perfect in the vastness of this place, and and it's a vastness shared by everybody because people go over the hills and they take the 405 through the Sepulveda Pass, and you see how big this place is or you're coming in from Santa Clarita and you see how big this place is I think the vastness is a is a big part of what LA is that's a great call as far as a symbol I, I discussed that you know but like thinking of it as a symbol okay there's a personal not personal but personal to me did you ever meet Jonathan Gold yeah food writer yeah discussions what, what no what? I didn't meet him I mean I didn't I mean we worked at the same paper um he we I met him one time um trying to remember where it was but the most significant conversation I ever had with him I think was at the LA Times Book Festival and, okay and there's like a they call it a green room but it's a massive thing where everyone that's participating <laughs> and there's a buffet and stuff so I met him there and talked to him for a little bit and I was long out of the LA Times at that point did you guys discuss food I'm trying to remember because I'm very connected to one a place you love called uh, called Moza. It's uh, yes, and yes. and um, uh, Nancy Silverton's uh, partner was a crime reporter at at the LA Times, and so I th- through him, okay. I, I'm uh, I'm uh, I can get into Moza pretty easily. I was Batalia Batalia was a partner there? Is that yeah, correct? early on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, wow and then so Jonathan Gold and just by the way so you know um, for me the Mount Rushmore of Los Angeles voices Finn Scully Jonathan Gold Art LeBeau and Michael Connolly so just wow you're putting me in major company I think that's pretty deserved I mean 38 books shows (laughs) have ran decade movies with that kind of authenticity yeah so Jonathan Gold that was a personal one we already discussed Vin Scully um and on the note of Art LeBeau, not jazz per se, but definitely the sound and the voice of L.A. and culture for a long time. What is your music, if if not jazz? Jazz was no to your dad. You mentioned the Rolling Stones concert. What is the music that Michael Connolly has most connected to throughout the years? Well, it definitely has become jazz. Um, <laughs> right, kind of has. And I would, yeah. I would play whatever's mentioned on in the books is something I was listening to when I wrote that page. Okay. So I have jazz going a lot. And because it's, I don't know, it gets me into the Bosch mode or, or the writing mode, I should say, because I listen to it no matter who I'm writing. You know, and without lyrics, it's not as intrusive and things like that. Yeah. But I, I really like blues, guitar. I, you know, I went to the uh, the guitar, the Eric Clapton Guitar Festival oh, last wow. month that was in, at Crypticon. Um, I've gone to that a few times. Yeah, so I like that kind of stuff. Have you ever been to the Baked Potato? Oh, yeah. I, I can get there in five minutes from my house. I hear so many, th- and I'm close by as well. Is that all it's cracked up to be? Is that the consummate jazz club? Like, how would you describe it? Well, there's, there's very few, so that's one of them for sure. Um, and uh, Catalina in Hollywood. Yeah. That's a good place to get jazz. It's interesting. Okay. Um, favorite restaurants in Los Angeles. And and again, not holding you to this. I Just throw a couple names out. Um, well, not in any order, but I mentioned yeah. Moza, um, love Dantana's. Yeah. Musso and Frank's. Um, Classics. You know, I'm, th- I'm not Moza, but I'm kind of saying really old places. I guess I'm drawn to the, 
to the older places. Um, uh, I think it's called Giorgio Baldi. I get the name of it wrong. It's down in uh, Santa Monica Canyon. That's one of my favorite places. Interesting. Two, I want to throw out just for the sake of history, Big Dean's Oceanfront Cafe on the Santa Monica Boardwalk was established in 1902. And that's the second oldest restaurant in LA. And nobody ever talks. I'm not even vouching for the food, but just for the history. Well, I'll have to check it out. It, it checked that. But this one, and this is a little bit of a trek. Saugus Cafe in Saugus, 1887, oldest restaurant in Los Angeles County. It's kind of in the middle of the nowhere. I'm, I'm not going to say go there for the food, but definitely as somebody of Los Angeles. Very interesting. Again, I just want to throw that out there. These are really good tips. I uh, appreciate that. I, I don't profess to know everything about L.A. You know? uh, I get to know the places I write about. but There you go. But that's the city will always keep giving. You know, um, I, I got a list. I'm, I'm a history, L.A. history buff. It's so funny in school. I was never into history at all. But L.A., I love it. Um, OK, underrated Los Angeles neighborhoods oh, or man. underappreciated, let's say. Uh, I don't know if I'd be an expert on that. But, uh, you know, uh, my daughter lives in Los Feliz and uh, I love going over there. I, but I guess that's not underappreciated. Um but that whole line down Sunset into downtown. Yeah. I've been uh, hanging around a lot in uh, Chinatown lately, uh, not for research purposes, but just as a, a center point for meeting some friends that come from all over the place. And uh, that's been a, a kind of a new discovery of mine. I, I've only just, I used to write about Chinese friends, which uh, closed uh, about a year ago after 50 some years wow. here. And that was a Harry Bosch place he loved and that was a place i just was tipped off to by cops loving that place um but you know i was always just kind of broadway and hill as far as chinatown goes but but it goes out towards stadium and so forth into some really interesting neighborhoods i'll tell you it's something i've been sort of infatuated with recently is frontier era los angeles um which again i'd always seen the wild west in movies like tombstone but again i was never into that but then doing my research and reading i'm like wait la was the epitome of wild west maybe the wildest of the wild west and these stories about you know i'd been to alvera street and i was like oh it's kind of a tourist trap but it's cute but to see the history this really is the birthplace of los angeles and you know like things like sonora town which doesn't exist and Calle de los Negros, like the most evil place on earth, like right adjacent to where Alvaro Street is. It's Los Angeles Street now. And like, to me, uncovering that kind of history in these areas that are like kind of obvious, where you're like, okay, everybody's been to Alvaro Street, but you're like, yeah, but the history that's behind that. And like, even Alvaro Street, the oldest grapevine in California is is in Alvaro Street with the Avila Adobe, the oldest home in Los Angeles. So all this history I think is really neat. What's your take on social media and how active are you? Um, well, in terms of promotion and so forth, I think it has some importance. I think it's waning a little bit, but I, I've never wanted that distraction, so I have it. But it mostly runs through someone, um, my sister, who I trust implicitly. Right. Good job. And, Keep and, that in the family. And when absolutely. she makes a post, she'll ask me, like, is it all right if I do this or do you want to say this or that kind of thing. So... I have a little bit of a hands on it, but for the most part, I don't. But it's important. I mean, I think less so now because of 
what's going on with it, but also because of my my situation. Yeah. I think in earlier days, I had like one of the I was one of the first authors to have a website. My website is 25 years old. Come on, that's yeah. We just had the 25th anniversary. MichaelConnelly.com, by the way. Yeah, MichaelConnelly. And that was started by my sister. So 25 years later. As things have happened, like you know, Twitter and Instagram, yeah. we've added those things, Facebook. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it serves a community if you have a community. It's a good way to reach people who might not otherwise be exposed to your work. Yeah. Um, as far as your um, tech proficiency why what both of your siblings two of your siblings <laughs> are kind of in that space right and then you're on the just on the analog side if you will so that's kind of a sort of good yin yang okay what do you wish you'd see more of or less of in los angeles <laughs> i should have been prepped for these i guess because i don't have a, i don't need good i, don't, I, want, I don't I want have authentic a, answers yeah a ready answer um i don't know the the basic ones less traffic you know, less smog. Um, uh, you know, like more access to different levels of entertainment for for people. You know, like a lot of the professional teams and so forth are kind of priced out of, oh, except man. for the Dodgers. Um, you know, um, I think the Dodgers are pretty good about being available to everybody. Still pretty pricey though. It's still for a family. It's it's still a still an event. Yeah. Um, what do you think? And we're wrapping it up. What is LA at its best? On a good day like today, the sun's out and, uh, you, you know, I come down the hill, so I'm seeing the city, the, the vast expanse, as they call it, um, and you kind of revel in it, you know. Um, I remember when I was a newspaper reporter, it was before the advent of Internet, and so I would be working night cops and I'd drive home over the, where it's kind of, the 101 is kind of elevated in Hollywood. And you can look out across the city, and I really felt like a prince of the city because I had probably just written something that one no one knows yet. They'll read about it in the morning, and that was like a a heady feeling. And uh, times are different now, but you can still kind of feel when you're here that you're on the front line of social, of society, of culture. If something's gonna take root, it's probably gonna take root here first, and that kind of joins us all together and you know i think it, it adds to the cohesion that we need i wanted to be prepped for that that was a beautiful answer oh, right I don't know. there that is brilliant okay so with each episode we end with one thing to do in la this week this one's simple go get your copy of resurrection walk <laughs> the book is available on november 7th you can get it at michaelconnelly.com you can get it at amazon you can get it at your local bookstore I'll tell you this, if you're listening to this podcast, you love Los Angeles, I can promise you that you are going to love Michael Connolly's books. And I already know I'm going to love Resurrection Walk, but Michael Connolly, can you tell me something, another pitch, extra push for the people to go buy, to go buy your new book? Oh, to go buy my book? Um, well, I mean, if you love LA, I think you'll, you'll love the books. Um, you said it earlier, it, it, the city serves as a character. This book's about... Bosch and the Lincoln lawyer, but the third character in it is is L.A. And they cover a lot of it by car. You know that was the one of the early purposes of the book is to put these two guys in a car and have them driving around L.A. and 
and it becomes part of, and they go from everywhere from Westchester all the way out to uh, El Cajon and, and you know they, they cover a lot of ground in this book such a beautiful thing well thank you for listening to episode 38 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett unfreaking believable having Michael Connolly here in the studio thank you so much Mr. Connolly this was not just a pleasure but it was an honor so thank you for being here thanks a lot glad to be here the man behind Bosch, the man behind Lincoln Lawyer, and 38 books about Los Angeles and true crime and just the culture and the history of the city. This man is etched in the Los Angeles Mount Rushmore of LA in a minute. Make sure you watch Bosch Legacy on Prime. Binge Bosch there as well and Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix. As for the podcast, hit that five-star rating and leave a review if you had fun listening to this interview. And please don't forget to follow and subscribe. I genuinely appreciate everybody along for the ride here at In a Minute with Evan Lovett. And once again, thank you, Michael Connolly. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.